Thanks everyone for coming in. This is amazing, amazing turnout. I was worried, like, oh, no, one will, no one's gonna come to our thing in the middle of the day, it's so exciting. Uh, but not at all surprising. <clears throat> so I'm so happy to be here to introduce Sylvia Federici. And um, I, I just wanna tell a, a little story. I, a, a couple of years ago, I was at a, um, a, a party and it was just like this grungy queer punk party. And we were, I was, um, in a room hanging out with a bunch of other um, fan dykes and I was telling someone about Caliban and the Witch. I was describing, you know, here's the argument. And, and um, these, someone else was walking by at the party with her beer and, her, and she was all, almost went by us and then she said, what, are you guys talking about Caliban and the Witch? And, um, and then, uh, so then we had this, you know, this gaggle and people kept coming in the room and we were like, get out, we're talking about Caliban and the Witch, you know, <laughs> but it was this whole room of, uh, you know, punk rock girls um, just, just um, sissing down uh, instead of burning down over this amazing book. So, um, so it does not surprise me at all to see this kind of turnout uh, for Sylvia Federici. She's a professor emerita and a teaching fellow at Hofstra University. She was a co-founder of the International Feminist Collective. Uh, and the Committee for Academic Freedom in Africa when she was teaching in Nigeria. Nigeria, correct? Yes. Um, and she's an organizer for, uh, she was an organizer for the Wages for Housework campaign, which I, I actually had um, some kind of, when I was a little kid, uh, my parents had some kind of time life book about women and <laughs> feminism. And, I would look at it over and over, and there was a picture of uh, wages for housework and all these women, and it was like 70s hairstyles and their boots and everything. And I was just like, wow, that's, they are so cool. So um, they're one of my favorites. Um, her, Sylvia's books include Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation, <clears throat> Revolution at Point Zero, Housework, Reproduction, and Feminist Struggle, Reenchanting the World, Feminism and the Politics of the Commons, Witches, Witch Hunting and Women, and her newest monograph, Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, Rethinking, Remaking, and Reclaiming the Body in Contemporary Capitalism. So please give it up for Sylvia Federici. Thank you very much, Len, and thank you very much to you all for this very, very warm, uh, you know, welcome. And I'm so happy to be here. It's always great to be back in San Francisco in this area. And uh, I, I'm going to change a little bit what I was planning to do because I figured, well, I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, how we began with this for housework and how I got to write Caliban and the Witch and so on. And this morning, looking through the books, uh, I found this book, and I will mention which book it is, that uh, basically I could uh, be surprised because it completely wiped out the whole story of the work that we have done, pretending to talk about, in fact, uh, the story of reproduction and so forth. And so I decided, well, maybe it's time to also um, go ahead, take a little journey and in this presentation, you know, sum up some of the points, some of the development or the perspective that uh, I'm going to present today. So, um, 
in, in the 70s, I'm, I come from that generation of feminism that uh, in a way, you know, began a whole process of critique of traditional revolutionary politics and revolutionary understanding of capitalist society, the socialist Marxist tradition. Because we realized as we were you know, searching for analysis that may explain you know, the particular form of exploitation and oppression that women suffer in capitalist society, you know, when we turned to the classical uh, books, we didn't find what we were looking for. And so we began a whole analysis starting from our own personal experience. Uh, and uh, we realized that the revolutionary tradition of socialism and anarchism as well had completely ignored a very large sphere of uh, human relation and activities. And we also discovered that before us, you know, that kind of critique had already been initiated by the anti-colonial movement. The anti-colonial movement and also the movement for civil rights and black power and many black theoreticians had in fact, you know, taken Marx and the socialist tradition to task, you know, for having always privileged the way the industrial worker, which is primarily white and male, you know, and not having seen the large population of the colonized, of the enslaved, uh, who had been very, very central to the accumulation of capital, to the beginning and development of capitalist relation at every stage of that development. And having always identified work, labor, you know, with wage work, and primarily with industrial work. You know? So we realized we were in a, in a tradition, right? And, uh, but uh, what the feminist movement, or at least the type of feminism, anti-capitalist feminism that I was part of, you know, was a feminism that um, you know, saw, you know, uncovered the whole sphere of reproductive relation. And uh, we, you know, the, have the work that we have done was to demonstrate there was nothing natural about it. Uh, yes, and that uh, this, what we call housework, reproductive work, was in fact work historically constructed and constructed in a way to benefit the labor market and to be functional and subservient to the reproduction of the workforce, and specifically the reproduction of our capacity to work. Right, that our capacity to work to be exploited is not something that is given, something that is natural, but continuously have to be produced and reproduced. It's a particular type of production. Right? So we began to develop a different conception of what is capitalism. The capitalism is not just centered in the factories, you know, but uh, it's uh, constructed through a much broader world. You know, if we think of capitalism as an assembly line, the assembly line runs through the communities, the homes, and so on, because the community and the home is a particular type of factory. It's a factory where you produce workers. You don't produce cars, you produce the workers who produce the cars. You know? And then we also 
began a whole analysis on the basis of that, when we realized, aha, housework is actually the production of the workforce, then we began a kind of analysis of the wage uh, relation, because we asked, how is it, if this work is so important, because without workers, there's no capitalism, without workers, there's no labor market exploitation, Right? And so in a way, the reproduction of the workforce is the support, is the pillar of every work activity. Then why, if it is so important for the capitalist class, it is not recognized? And then we came to the conclusion that in fact, the more exploited and the more productive a kind of work is in the history of capitalism, and then the more the capitalist class invisibilizes it, the more they have to hide it. And that's in fact the whole rhetoric of racism and sexism, right? They are all in fact ways of covering up what are forms of super exploitation, of particularly brutal, particularly intense form of exploitation and making it appear as if they were incidental or if they were related you know, to the personality of the workers and uh, so that they can get away, in a sense, you know, with having to remunerate, to recognize, and to return any part of the wealth that is produced that way. So we began this whole analysis of the wage relation, which I think has been very, very important, an analysis that basically began to look at the wage mostly as a political instrument, right? As not only a means for accumulating wealth, you know, by not paying, right, a large amount of labor, but a way also of creating hierarchy, a way of creating inequality as a production, as an instrument for the production of inequality. And then so, so see, the capitalism has been able to perpetuate itself, not only, you know, through the accumulation of wealth and so forth, but through that accumulation process also to incessantly create hierarchy, create division, create it. And, and the wage relation has been a tool to naturalize many forms of exploitation, to make them appear as non-work or as something different from capital, as pre-capitalist, as non-capitalist. And in fact, Two of the objections that we used to get commonly, you know, to our analysis was, oh my God, you're talking about the household reproduction as being, you know, capitalist work, you know, but this is capitalism, it's a factory, it's industry, it's not technology. Capitalism brings people together in a factory. You know, housework is pre-capitalist, pre-capitalist. On the other hand, you have people say, oh my God, the family, sexuality, child raising, this is the only area that is free. You know, you are bringing in capitalism in, in something that is really the only island, you know, of free relation where we care for each other, etc. You know, I, I had a slogan at the time that actually has become quite popular. They call it labor, we call it unpaid labor. We, they call it love. We call it unpaid labor. <laughs> right. And uh, so, in fact, 
it was the kind of response that uh, you know put me on the path of uh, you know historical work. They put me on the path and eventually led to Caliban and the Witch, because uh, I wanted to show. I wanted to be able to show that in fact you know housework is not something natural. You know because. Uh, uh, if you look at society, for example, right, where production is for consumption, where people are producing for subsistence, then you don't have that separation between wage and non-wage, work and non-work, between production and reproduction. Those kind of separation, I knew they do not exist. You know, in a society, imagine even a society of subsistence agriculture, for instance. You know, when you are going to the fields and you're producing, you know, food and so on, what is production and what is reproduction, right? So that's how I began to do the historical work that eventually led me to go back to the beginning of capitalism because I wanted to understand, you know, what capitalism is to begin with how it came into existence, also to defeat all the conception of very, very evolutionary conception of history that, you know, I mean, just history is like a path. It gets better and better. <laughs> and you go from, you know, formerly enslavement, and then we have wage labor, and then you have, and I have to say that some of that you still have, you know, for example, in Marx, you know, there is a conception in Marx that for somehow uh, with capitalist development, there's going to be, you know, and the spread of industrialization to every part of the world. There's going to be a homogenization of work, right? So that, for example, forms of work that are not industrial are seen as residual, residual of a previous society. But the idea is that eventually, and in fact, Marx was very optimistic. He thought that, uh, you know, eventually uh, capitalism was laying the foundation, the material foundation for a communist society by developing technology, by developing industry, and that at one point we have a revolution and we snatch industry and the means of production from the hands of the capitalists and we set them work to up for ourselves. I don't buy that anymore. I don't buy that. There's a lot that has been missed in that picture and not accidentally what Marx predicted has not taken place. And I think uh, that what has been missed is also related to the fact that Marx has not seen the whole area of reproduction has not seen the production of inequalities, and even in terms of slave labor, you'd be surprised in the three volume of Capital how rarely Marx speaks of slave labor. And he was convinced in the same ways as with housework that these were residual forms. Yes, slave labor in the American plantation produces is part of the production of capital, but he really thought that this was some sort of an anomaly that with the development of capitalism, that anomaly will be overcome. And you know, Marx even sent a letter to Lincoln uh, as the head of the first international when uh, Lincoln declared you know, the, the declaration for emancipation of the slave. So he was very much convinced you know, that there'll be this trajectory 
that would lead. And I, I think, you know, I've learned tremendously from Marx, as you can see from my work, but I also think that we have to distance ourselves, you know, from some of those uh, assumptions, and particularly the idea that uh, capitalism was a necessary evil. The capitalism was the instrument of a higher rationality, you know, that basically through dirt and exploitation and suffering brought into the world you know, the means for the liberation of humanity from the tyranny of labor. And I think that's a very important. So to me, Caliban and the Witch was in fact a long path that was very, very useful. It has helped me tremendously to understand, you know, the history of capital development, what capitalism is, the role of gender and race relation within it, and, um, and I have to say, and the role of the witch hunts, for instance, as a key moment in the formation of modern capitalist society, that the witch hunt was not a peripheral uh, persecution, but in fact was extremely important because in a way it was uh, functional to the creation of a new sexual division of labor, you know, to the uh, attack on the social power of women, you know, the process of increasing subordination of women to men, you know, in the new capitalist society, you know, and uh, also as a general attack not only on women and gay people, because the witch hunt was also used massively against gay people, very, very often uh, gay people were burned before or after, you know, women accused of witchcraft uh, on the stake. And uh, so the, the, it was also used, you know, as a tool to undermine, you know, the struggle that people were making against the advance of capitalist relation. And as I pointed out in the book, for those who have not read it, you know, the witch hunt was also exported, you know, to what we call now Latin America, particularly Brazil, Colombia, parts of the Andean region, and was very much used to create a whole new misogynous world, new relation among women and men, and also to break down the resistance of people to colonization, to conquest. Now, uh, in a way, after they finished the book, I never, never closed that chapter. For me, the question of the witch hunt has remained, you know, and uh, as you can tell from the smaller book that I published recently, which is Witch Hunting and Women, and there are very important reasons why. There are very important reasons why, and part of it is because in a recent time, you know, just about as I was finishing, you know, uh, the last pages of Caliban and the Witch, around 2000, 2001, I was receiving news. I was reading about new witch hunts taking place in parts of Africa, India, and, and of course, well, first of all, I was horrified. You know, I was horrified, but also, I began to be interested in understanding what forces would motivate this return to witch hunting. 
And of course, one assumption that I pursued was that they would be connected and rooted in the new forms of capitalist accumulation, right? Because since the 1970s, in fact, at the end of the 70s, as you know, there's a whole process of restructuring of the global economy that is continuing into the present, right? A restructuring of the global economy that has form of violence, extremely violent, that uh, so violent that it calls, it takes us back to the beginning of capitalism, right? To that period of the 16th, 17th century, you know, when you have massive expulsion of peasantry from the land in Europe, you have the conquest, the slave trade, and the setting up of slave plantation in the American, right? So the new forms of uh, the economic restructuring, they begin at the late 70s. And, um, you know, with more time, we could go into detail you know, understanding why, why we have that. And quite quickly, I can only say that my thesis is that this was a response, it was a new counter-revolution. You know, what we call neoliberalism, globalization, the expansion of capitalist relation across the world. It's really a response, you know, to the revolutionary process that culminates in the 60s and 70s, you know, with the anti-colonial struggle, you know, the struggle against uh, racism, against apartheid, the civil rights movement, black power, then the feminist movement, student movement, anti-war movement, etc. There is a moment in which, really, the bottom, right, looking back for now, we can really appreciate even more how important that period was. That for all its limits, the limits of the radical movements, you know, that generated it, but they nevertheless, you know, shook up the world. It gave a big shock to the capitalist castle and certainly began to subvert some of the mechanism the capitalism has used to perpetuate its power, you know, particularly the hierarchy, you know, for example, the, the uh, refusal, the anti-war, you know, anti-Vietnam war movement, I think was very important because there was an element also critique, important critique of colonization, of imperialism. And uh, the feminist movement, all the gender hierarchies, the civil rights movement. So this very carefully, constructed, you know, divisions, you know, among the world proletariat, among the world of the oppressed, you know, were being shaken to at their roots. And I believe that the restructuring of the global economy was certainly a political response to that. It was a way to undermine forms of organization, forms of labor that uh, had been particularly, you know, important to the kind of subversion that we saw in through the 60s and 70s. So the, my work in, uh, I had the great fortune in the early 80s, you know, as the new globalization drive was taking off to spend a lot of time 
in Nigeria and where I was teaching. I was offered the possibility of teach there for a while and uh, I arrived at a time when uh, the Nigeria, like other African countries, were confronting you know, what has come to be known as the debt crisis, right? The debt crisis, I mean, it's a scandalous concept. <laughs> For example, the African could have a debt, you know, to American bank, to the American or European, you know, after they've been savagely, savagely robbed of humans and resources for generation and generation, right? But believe it or not, the debt crisis. That was, you know, engineer, you know, in 1979 in Washington. It was engineered by the U.S. Federal Reserve, you know, by a simple maneuver, the increase in the rate of interest on the dollar. That, just that. And what you have is that, you know, after the end of uh, the process of the decolonization, Many newly independent countries, now they had their flag, they had their government, you know, were encouraged by foreign banks and government to take loans so they could catch up, they could develop, development, development, development. In Latin America, many times people have said, they call it development, we call it violence. Eh? We call it violence. So in the name of, development, of development, they were convinced to take this loan. And then, at very low interest rate, then the interest rate goes up, the payment becomes unmanageable, and the countries are all on the verge of defaulting. Those are all that of my generation know, for example, 1982, Mexico was on the verge of default, Mexico. And uh, then comes the World Bank, come the, you know, the I call them the cavalry. <laughs> the cavalry, and they say, oh, no, no, you're not going to default. Here, new loans, but you have to reform. You, and they call it structural adjustment. And structural adjustment is a particular set of maneuvers, of policies that brought back the newly independent country way back to where they were under colonialism. You know, structural adjustment. So the globalization, neoliberal phase of capitalism begins, and in fact, in a foundational way, in a foundational way, begins with the recolonization of what had been a former colonial world, right? The recolonization meant, oh, now, Cut all investment, you know, to the reproduction of your people, medicine, schooling, you know, university from elementary schooling, healthcare, cut, cut, cut. You know, there was a time in Africa you could travel to the campuses and you saw this building half built, right? They had begun to build and then came structural adjustment and nothing was finished because all the money was drained to pay for the debt, to pay for the debt. And then the economies had to be restructured, all restructured, so that 
all production had to be for the payment of the debt, directed to export, right? And then they were told, well, how are you going to pay? Well, cut your forests, uh, open up, make great deals for oil companies, make great deals for mining companies. And the World Bank has written down, I have some of those books, the mining code, the code for how com countries can negotiate mining relation with mining companies. I say all of this, you know, it may seem that I'm taking a long road to where I want to go. But it's very important, in fact, to, well, to my work and also important to our politics down to this moment. Because the big migratory movement, the big migration movement that begin, begin already in the 80s, right, were not spurred by the fact that, oh, the United States was such, or Europe was such a great country, right, the American dream. No. They were spurred by the fact that people could not survive, you know, in the countries of origin, because exactly because of the policies they were cooked up in Washington and uh, by the European community. So that we have, you know, this history is very, very important to our politics today, particularly when we talk about immigration, right? Because it is a scandal. In the same way as it was a scandal to speak of a debt crisis, a debt crisis for Africa or for Latin America, you know, a debt, who owes to whom? Right. I think that we continuously have to say, who owes to whom and turn the table. And the same thing also is with immigration. Why are people coming here? They're coming here to take back some of what has been stolen from them not only historically from the 15th, 16th century to the present, but also in more recent time to the program of structural adjustment and this continual repayment of the debt, a debt that was artificially created. So this has been part, yeah, my, my contribution to this, or my small contribution, right, to the analysis of this period and the politics that I generated from above and from below has been to look, and this is where revolution at point zero comes from, has been to <coughs> analyze, you know, what has been the consequences, the impact, you know, of these processes right, on uh, the organization of reproduction internationally, right? Because first of all, it has been very clear to me, and not only to me, that what we call globalization in all these different policies, it's really a major war on people's ability to reproduce themselves, right? Uh, a war waged with massive privatization of land, you know, so dispossession, expropriation, attack on communal land ownership, right? Uh, also through austerity program, disinvestment, disinvestment in education, in healthcare, etc., etc., and the precarization of labor, right? So there is a connection to all of them. There is a common denominator if you line them up. And the common denominator is that it's made it more and more difficult for most people across the world 
actually to survive, actually. And I can add the whole attack on housing. I mean, it's a scandal that in this country as well, more and more we're becoming a population of homeless people. Right? And now you cannot turn the corner without people actually living in the street. And that's part of that process of expropriation, of dispossession. And it's very important to see, and this is another political lesson that we need to carry in our pocket, whatever we do, whatever politics we do, which is that uh, there is a continuity, there's been a continuity between the impoverishment and dispossession of millions across the former colonial world, you know, and what has taken place in Europe and in the United States. Then the attack on every entitlement and then the attack on work relation and benefits, etc. here has been premised and built upon, you know, in the dispossession and mass impoverishment you know, across Latin America, Africa, etc. That's very, very important because they are not disconnected. And of course, the lie that has been sold, you know, that uh, you know, in the United States we benefit from imperialism. Some do, some do. Unfortunately, they're not a small group. But uh, the, the majority, in fact, is being impoverished. There's a continuity, even though that impoverishment is different for. So I have been very interested in understanding, in particular, what happens to reproduction work, what happens to care for the elderly, housework, children, a child labor, and child, <laughs> indeed, child labor has increased, you know, across the world. And I mean, child raising and, uh, you know, the conclusion, in an essence, is that uh, we are facing now a massive, massive crisis of reproduction, a massive crisis of reproduction, of which, you know, the decline, constant decline of life expectancy is a very clear symptom. The increase of suicide among children, among young people, among the elderly, is also an expression and that, uh, you know, incre increasingly, you know, uh, life is breaking down, you know, at the seams. And um, with that, uh, we have also seen a major increase in the violence, in the general violence against people, against workers, against proletarians, against the dispossessed and also in violence against women. And I'm using here women in a very broad sense, including women, uh, trans women, and so on. So women I'm using in a very broad, not in a purely biological sense. Uh, and uh, this is some of the work that I've done because I'm very, I think it's important to understand, you know, when we analyze the new forms of violence Right, uh, to see what is their connection right, with the new forms of social, economic relation, the new form of work, the new forms of accumulation. And much of the work, uh, theoretical and practical, uh, I work in New York with a group of women. We have a website called Feminist Research on Violence, one word. Uh, we are still working on it. It's not that user-friendly because we are really incompetent. <laughs> but we are working on it. 
but it's active, feminist research on violence, and our concern is precisely to try to understand this different aspect of feminist activism, the whole issue of violence, the issue of the body, child raising, and so forth, and sexuality, and, uh, and work economic relation, you know, access to resources, and how the new forms of economic life are also connected to the new forms of violence. This is part of the work that uh, we have been doing and that uh, I'm very interested to talk about today. To say, for instance, that um, we have been analyzing how these new forms of witch hunting that have been proliferating in many parts of the world are connected on one side you know, to the increasing, the increasing attack on communitarian relations and processes of land dispossession. You know, so that uh, as uh, you have, for instance, in Africa, often local chiefs, also in complicity with national government and foreign companies, right, who very often are moving in into communities and forcing people out because they have to dig coal pan or because they have to open up, you know, a mine or an oil drilling facility, right? Then to break the division, to create a division in the community. You know, witch hunting and the image of the witch. And I want to say something here, the image of the witch and the witch hunt, it's a very, very particular type of charge that is extremely useful to divide people. You know, when you say that somebody's practicing witchcraft, first of all, witchcraft by definition is a supernatural power. You know, those who practicing it particularly, presumably, are doing so in hiding in a very occult way. So you don't have to prove much. You have to say, she's a witch, she's a witch, right? At night she flies and she does this, 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 this. So the whole process of actually evidence, you know, is shortcut. Hmm? And uh, also, it's the image of a person who is just evil, right? There's uh, not for gain, it's just evil. You know, the old witch was said to be the enemy of God the enemy of humanity, the enemy of our neighbor, right? <laughs> but it's a very useful uh, charge to divide up people. And so this, I'm looking in these books about the connection between the new enclosure, land expropriation, and the new witch hunts, right? Also, we are developing maps to show what are the situation within this neoliberal development that are really triggering much of the violence. For example, in Latin America, you know, you find that a very common element in the violence is the fact that in so many communities, it's women who are in the forefront of the defense of the land, of the rivers, of the forest, when uh, the companies are coming in, right? Because women are the, the subject of reproduction. You know, when the river is poisoned, when the waters are poisoned, or the cropland 
is full of mercury, uh, they know that the community is bound to die. They have to feed children, they have to deal with the people who are sick. So they are very often those who are right there to defend it, you know, the, 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 the forest against the logging. And they more and more have been the target of uh, paramilitary, the army, and so on. You know? Also nowadays, women have to work outside of uh, the home. You know, migration, very violent process. And with women, right, the threat of violation, the threat of rape, women take contraceptive when they decide to migrate. You know? And often they work in the night, on the street, selling things, and through the day, so in public space. Used to serve one man, now you serve 20. Now you serve a whole world of people in ways that uh, you know, take you out even some of the protection of your community. You know? So we are, looking, we are looking at the militarization of life. The fact that more and more people are working with arms. There has been an increase, an immense increase in the number of people that are working with violence. Security guards, soldiers, you know, workers in jails. You know, basically, not only we have now permanent warfare, very connected to expropriation, but we have a permanent warfare, as you know, I mean, I'm saying the obvious, in our communities. So the demilitarization of life also is creating a certain, uh, ce celebrates a new type of masculinity, right? Or very, very aggressive masculinity. You know, the kind of men with like arms everywhere. They can hardly walk. <laughs> they have arms, they are monsters, right? They look like monsters, right? And that has an impact. You know, I was mentioning yesterday, talking about this, that uh, Fanon, in the wretched of the earth, at the end of the wretched of the earth, he was very precise, you know, as he was analyzing the psychosis of French torturers, you know, who were taking, dealing with the psychosis of people who were torturing in Algeria. You know, he was saying, obviously, because these were people who were going home and beating up their wife. saying, obviously, you cannot divide. Violence is indivisible. <laughs> You cannot all day be violent with people and then go home and be sweet to your family, your children. And this is what is happening today in our communities also. Uh, so these are the kind of maps that we are, because we want to make a point. And I think this is one of the points that I'm making in my work and also in my activities, which is that we cannot fight, of course, against violence without fighting and against the general condition of economic life, social political relation. We cannot isolate the fight against violence, you know, from the struggle to transform the world against you know, the new capitalist form of accumulation. And certainly we cannot fight violence by demanding more jail, by demanding more severe penalties, which as it has been shown over and over and over, only gives more power to the police, more power to the government. And another point that is very important also is that violence is first 
and foremost, institutional. And this is another issue that I think is very, very important for the feminist movement and for any movement of social justice. That the first form of violence is institutional violence. That all violence, in a sense, point to the institution, to the organization of society, to the economic structure. That we have to name violence not only what is done with a gun or with a knife or with a bomb, but we have to call violence, for example, an economic policy that dispossesses people, that forces people to go to the hospital at the last stage of metastasis because they don't have the money or the time to go before, etc. That's violence. The other day, 700,000 people were cut off from food stamps. That's violence. So we really have to rename violence. So this part of the work, the renaming of violence, and the seeing that we cannot fight against violence without at the same time attacking you know, many of the structural, economic and social structures that in fact are making it possible. I always say that for example, if waitresses had to have the guarantee of a good wage, of a good you know, of resources enabling them to support themselves they wouldn't have, for example, to be exposed often to the kind of abuse that they have to be exposed and accept because they are dependent on a tip. Because to this day, the majority of waitresses in this country, you know, literally have to cajole and make themselves seductive or at least be kind, even in front of abuse, because they do not have the right to a wage. I mean, this is one small example, but I think is indicative of all structural injustice and a whole uh, you know, situation in which there's a direct relation between the, the structural economic violence of economic relation and the violence to which uh, a lot of people, beginning with women, trans, and children, we don't talk enough about children's violence, the violence against children, fundamental. And, uh, and I'm going now to work towards a conclusion because I want to have time to have a discussion. And I want to say that equally important to this kind of analysis has been my work on uh, what to be done and what, uh, how are people struggling? You know, what are the fault, not only of resistance, you know, but through the resistance, the form of transformation of our society. And, uh, you know, we have had all this debate also in my group, whether we should use the word resistance or not. And many women, you know, they, they are very uh, adamant about, no, we shouldn't use it because yes, we want to resist, but it's not enough. And resistance is a very, yeah. And, and I've learned that is, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, but I've also learned that you cannot seriously resist any form of social injustice without at the same time transforming social relation. You know, that actually many of the struggles that we call struggles of resistance are in that process also producing something new. Also producing something new. They're producing, you cannot really engage in ineffective resistance without changing your relation with the people with whom you're struggling. And this is something that I want to in concluding this presentation, I want to really expand upon 
because it's what I call the politics of the commons. And uh, this has been taken on more and more space in my work, you know, in uh, theoretically and otherwise. The politics of the common is the politics that A, I see has already been acted out in many ways, in many parts of the world, in response precisely to the kind of expropriation, dispossession, impoverishment, right? And often manifest itself, you know, by people, for instance, in many parts of Latin America, expelled from the rural area and going to, you know, towns, taking over territory, taking over peripheries of cities and building new communities through collective work, yeah, through cooperation. Right? These are the people who understand that if they do not stick together, if do not work together, struggle together, they are going to be destined to a very wretched you know, life and to a really defeat. And so in, uh, in Argentina, they call these encampments visions, villas, visions. Uh, visa Miseria, Visa 2124, Visa Retiro Bis. These are encampments, uh, city, new cities that have now thousands and thousands of people and they have been built through collective work. And women have played a very key role in it, right? Because women have really been in the forefront of creating all new forms of reproduction, more collective, more cooperative, like the collective kitchen. Collective kitchen means that you have places where maybe 10 women and some young men, you know, are cooking for maybe 700 meals or a thousand meals, you know, and it's not the same women all the time. On Monday there's a group, Tuesday there's another group, and they do that, you know, for very, very cheap resources and, um, you know, making available. It's a whole new wealth that is made available to the community. and. And also cooking together, right? You talk, you know, you're not alone, right? You, you exchange ideas, you exchange information, this is happening, what do you think, etc., etc. There's a whole viewpoint on social events that is being produced together with the food, right? The urban garden, and then all kinds of forms collectively produced for preventive medicine, recuperating, uh, you know, knowledge about herbs, about contraception, etc. There's a lot of that happening. I speak much about it on the basis of my experience, particularly in Argentina, but and also Chile, in uh, reenchanting the world. And uh, I'm also being very interested in the way they connected to these, you know, common of reproduction, you know, there's been a recuperation of the collective memory, you know, there's a bit, um, it's almost awareness of the importance of memory, of the recuperating the history of those who have struggled in a particular locality before, those who have died, those who have sacrificed, and what has happened to an area, you know, there's a recognition 
till the cooperate his history gives you power in the struggle because it allows you to place what you're doing in a much broader context and to go beyond the limits of your individual life. This is the whole power of the commons, that you begin to think not in terms of me, or me and you, or me and my child, but you're beginning to think in terms of a broader conception of who is the family, you know, who are the, uh, the people around you, and solidarity. And so, in a way, history, recuperating the collective memory, is also solidarity yeah, with, with those who have died, with those who have struggled. Not only with the living, but also with those who struggle. And to say, no, the injustice that was done to you, the crimes that were committed against you, no, should not be passed into silence. We should not allow us to forget those crimes. But you are with us, when we say presente, you know, this is what the power of collective memory. And there's a lot of that that is done and very consciously is done. And in that vein, you know, with the number of women in Spain, we have a number of projects, but one project has been to recuperate the memory, the history of, of, the, of the witches, of the witch hunts, you know, because after the publication of Caliban and the Witch in Spain, you know, we decided just out of historical curiosity to go to some of the places where women have been executed, where there were persecution. And we discovered to our horror that the Wichans now are made, you know, a big ob object of tourist attraction. Right? So along the roads you might find, you know, the picture of the witch with the broom, or you have the shops, shops and shops where you can buy for 20 euros, you can buy your brujita, your real, you know, bruja, your and, you know, totally misogynous, you know, the teeth out, the satanic smile, right, and you see children walking away with it, and I feel like, oh my God, oh my God, all over the story again, oh please. And uh, so we decided, you know, we got to do something. We'll go into the shops and say to the women who work there, why you sell this crap? <laughs> and they said, yeah, we don't like it, but our boss says, you know, keep these cells. These cells, right? So you have the cup, the coffee cup, the apron, everything. So we said, okay, cells. Then we're going to do something. Then we're going to work on making sure it doesn't sell any longer. And uh, we began a process of, uh, first of all, organizing. We made a call and said, okay, we want you know, women, study groups, women who go into the archive. Let's do history from below. Because we really, so many people don't have an idea of what really, if they knew, if they knew what is behind these things that they are buying, they would not do it. So let's make it much more visible. Let's make what happened when, this is where not allowing the history of the past to be forgotten. So we made a number of study groups where women who have gone into the archive, these are not historians, but they're gone and looked at the archival material and began to figure out what happened and what, 
and is already being very powerful. We had an encounter in Pamplona this year, in March. We are going to have another one in October, and it was very powerful to see you know, the effects. Women who say, oh, I walk the streets of my town many years with my child, and I didn't know that on the streets, you know, women have been burned, right? And then reading the names of the women, it was like, uh, and so this is the kind of recuperation, because in the process we understand what happened, what were the consequences of it, and gain insight into what is happening to us today. Because I've learned doing this historical work, you know, that capitalism changes in many forms. They go through particularly response to struggle. They always have to reinvent themselves, as we have to reinvent the struggle. But at the same time, there are certain very structural elements that are always there. You know, all through its 500 years of history, capitalism has always been a violent system, right? And the prosperity that it has granted, it has granted to limited population, limited sectors of the working class, and for the limited amount of time. And otherwise, from the slave trade through colonization and through now all the processes of dispossession, mass incarceration, and so forth, we see that their violence is a structural element. And similarly, you know, gender, race, hierarchies are also structural elements. You know, there is now still a debate by some historian, some Marxists, who say, Oh no, you can imagine a capitalism that is not racist and misogynist, right? Because you can imagine logically a capitalism just based on the exploitation of labor without saying who the labor is. <laughs> but I'm saying, yes, logically perhaps, but we're not dealing logically, we're dealing with history. When we look at the history, we see that in fact, right, this has been the structure and it's going to be to this blessed end. And so whatever struggle we do, whatever you know, uh, project we are in, I think we have to put into our struggle, into our program, the going beyond of capitalist relation. And that also begins with realizing that when we speak of the commons, we really speak of a particular logic, a particular way of organizing society, and also a necessity for the struggle. We cannot make effective struggle over a long period of time without reorganizing our daily life and without reorganizing starting from the present, you know, our life in a more cooperative way. Right. In other words, the commons is not something to, to come. Enough with that idea that revolution is like, uh, you know, a century away. You know, I really do believe that it begins now. And as a necessity, because you cannot really struggle unless you reorganize the reproduction of your daily life, which means that we have to reorganize our life in a way that we tighten up, we create more effective ties among us. The struggle is not something abstract. It's not an abstract protest. It's not enough to show up for a demonstration. 
as important as that is, is the way we organize our daily life. You know, in a way that brings us more together, that we put our resources together, that puts our life together. And uh, this reproductive, the need to reproduce ourselves and to create a different infrastructure, more effective, you know, more based on solidarity for our struggle. I think is a fundamental condition, you know, without which we will not be able, in fact, to, you know, achieve any long-term positive result. Because people's lives are already very terrible. And very often, making a struggle looks like another piece of work. And, uh, but it shouldn't be, you know. That's why so many people might not want to a meeting, to a demonstration, and in that way, we have to change the way in which we struggle. And the last thing is, in my last book called Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, the last piece that I've written is called, you know, joy, it's in place of joyful militants. Militants, activism, protest must be joyful. It doesn't mean that you may not run risk and suffer but what you do has to have an element of joy in it. We must change our life for the positive. Otherwise, there's probably something wrong with our politics. Thank you so much. Questions and I want to try to take the mic. No, oh, this one doesn't work. Okay, I'm gonna um, jiggle the bottom of it and the cord. Here, I'll let you do it. Um, so I, I actually I wanted to I wanted to be the first question. So I, I have the microphone. Um, um, I. Sylvia, so one, one question I had, um, you spoke about the expropriation of land um, and the use of witchcraft uh, or witch hunting as a means of um, mm -hmm. uh, expropriating land. And I, it made me think about um, in the American drug war or the war on drugs, yeah. one of the tools that was used um, during the drug war was if any, anyone associated with a person uh, you know, found dealing drugs or living there, or, you know, someone giving someone a ride who they didn't even know that's what they were doing, they could have their property seized, right? Um, or there, you know, there, I also thought of um, during the Japanese internment, a lot of the people were taken off of their land, taken out of their homes, and their, you know, their uh, land was taken from them. Um, so my question is, what, um, why, which, why does sometimes witch hunting serve that role and sometimes these other techniques like this you know this drug war technique or um, th this um, mass incarceration of the Japanese like why when and why does witchcraft and witch hunting get used in that way yeah you know there are, there are obviously different contexts one element in this proliferation of uh, charges of witchcraft has been associated with uh, the massive presence that has grown over the 80s and 90s and again continues 
of evangelical Pentecostal sects, many of them financed by the right wing, who have gone to communities who were being destabilized by economic austerities, you know, and extractivist politics and so on. You know, communities where had already many people migrating and, uh, you know, proselytizing on this basis of, oh, yeah, you know, you're poor, that's because, you know, something wrong with you, or maybe people in your community are conspiring against you, and they have all this thing about Satan. There is a Satan conspiracy, and you have to be very careful. And they're really spreading, you know, it's like uh, the cultural equivalent of a neoliberal, think of yourself, don't think of the community, you know, and, but watch out about what people are doing, and also, it's very much connected to the fact that it's targeting against women, connected to this really big drive among women in so many places to recuperate a lot, for instance, of you know, old knowledges about herbs, healing practices, there's a lot of that. The whole issue of healing, particularly you cannot rely on the, on the hospital, on the medical profession for money or for other reasons. And so that too, the garden, the gardening, the defense of nature. So you're now charged of being a witch, you know, if you're interested in that, the trees, the plants, healing practices, and there's a lot. This has become part of many women's feminist movement struggle. And so that's where the charge of being a witch comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah? I'm just interested because you're, you're calling it witchcraft and I'm really glad you brought the evangelicalism in. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals sort of moving to Africa, especially yes. like Uganda. Ghana, so Uganda. That Nollywood took out of like just movies as like Hollywood and America. Yes. A lot of the content of the Bollywood movies is about witchcraft. Yeah. But it's different because it's not based, right? Look, many, from what I, I learned, and you certainly know more than me, but no, yeah, yeah, but what I've seen is that, you know, many, many agricultural society or pre-capitalist society yeah, who have a deep conception and relation, where people have a big relation with nature, right? And uh, they are much more sensitive to the idea that there are all these forces that uh, you know might be benign or not benign, and you may have to do ritual. In Africa, for instance, one is the cult of the ancestors, and you have to do certain things for the ancestors. If you don't do it, they might not be nice towards you, right? But that particular notion of the witch, right? That uh, it's very, which is, all evil, the all evil person, right? It's like, uh, you know, it's very much rooted in Christianity, the Christianity that basically divides the world into good and evil, God and the devil, right? And I've seen some of the manuals, I've seen them actually in Latin America and Mexico, the handbooks, because this stuff, actually in the past, I got a few handbooks also online that you they tell you how to recognize a, a witch. Um, friends I have in Ghana, they told me that they have television programs. In Ghana, massive, massive presence. 
of Pentecostal groups. And uh, for instance, they told me that in a number, even at the university, you know, now meetings are opening up with people crossing and speaking. So there's the religion is being used again as you know, in the 16th, 17th century with colonization. I often call the World Bank and the IMF the new missionaries. But actually, you know, with the IMF and the World Bank have come these evangelical. I, I, when I was in Nigeria, I saw a number of them. This was the beginning at the time. This was 1984, 1985. And they would go, at that time, they were all white, often from the south. They'll come with little trucks covered by writings. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, they've been, <laughs> please. And then they'll go to the market. They'll go into a little podium and they'll say, you have a soul, Jesus, tell Je Jesus will do everything. So cover your eyes, you have a problem with your eyes and say, oh Jesus, I have an eye problem. You have a problem with your stomach and Jesus will take care of that. So that was the beginning, and I thought, oh, real, what's going on, right? And that was the beginning, you know, of a, as people were being more and more affected, right, by economic policies. Also came these who said, oh, it's not, it's not, if you're poor, it's because there's something, the problem. And this handbook begin with sin, the sinner, right? So they tell you how you're a sinner, and you're going to go to hell and die in the flames and whatnot. Of course, if you join with them, then there's Satan, right? What Satan is doing? How do you recognize who are the acolytes of, yeah. This is really a manual for dividing people, for, you know, sowing. And as I write in, uh, in uh, my analysis there, which I took from what other people have said, is that you know, th th there's been a sense that now, with the new economic processes of globalization in many parts of the world, particularly villages and so on, people are losing the sense. There's a sense of disorientation because it's becoming more and more difficult to understand what are the forces that are shaping your life and your economic condition. Why you cannot sell your coffee? Why you cannot sell your coffee at the price of you know five years ago, two years ago? Why you have to, because so many now of the decision are not depending on the regional office of the government or the gov, they are now depending you know, on a market in Chicago, right? On this big uh, international market that are selling prices Etc. And so there is a whole, there is a whole uh, 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 atmosphere that is also generating suspicion, because you see some people prospering, and you see, and um, yeah, this is really part of the context that is generating witch hunts. Yes. Yes. Uh, to now today's capitalism. Yes. We see, as for example, uh, women incorporating into the capitalist plan, for example. Not all. No, not all. But I'm saying some. You know, yeah. Like 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I understand, and you correct me, that it is a radical leftist feminism. Uh, how do you, you know, meet with the challenge of these uh, 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 representatives of the ruling class mm -hmm. against you or in the question of women's rights and the advance against the capitalist class? Right, yeah. You know, this is happening across the board, I mean, everything. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important, and more and more, in fact, you know, I think we speak of feminisms in the plural because there's not one feminism, because you're right. I mean, femi not only women, but feminism has been used in the same as, you know, human rights has been used as a tool in imperialism. You justify over and over invading country, torturing people in the name of human rights. So, you know, the, I think what, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, the international capital and through the United Nations, they really understood the power of the women's movement. They understood that, uh, you know, the power of subversion. And uh, they saw at the same time that they could co-opt it, you know, in this demand that so many families made of being let in, you know, to be, you know, okay, you know, women's liberation by entering the male-dominated fields. Not that I'm against that, but if that is all of your struggle, then we are in trouble. Then we are in trouble. And they saw that they could use it. They could use it to reactivate the capitalist machine that was in crisis. Because in the mid-70s, capitalism was facing a crisis and a crisis of control of work, control of exploitation. And in a way, a good part of the restructuring of the global economy has meant also, right? The precarization of labor, you know, opening up the doors of wage work to women, but wage work without the benefits of the past, without any guarantee at the lowest level. I mean, I found out, you know, that I've uh, been doing some work on women and debt in the United States. You know, women are those who are carrying the highest amount of debt at all levels, mortgages, student, and credit card, right? That, and it's usually women who have a job, those who are carrying a lot of debt. Because the job doesn't pay enough for, to give you a economic autonomy, but allows you because you have something of a salary to take a loan from a bank, right? So you, you actually wait for your salary, so you go to a payday loan. I mean, effectively, with women's wage labor comes the paid loan fair, and the interest rate are like 50%, because you have no collateral, so you are at risk. All you have is meager salary, right? And so that we have to be very clear, you know, when we speak of feminism. No, in Latin America, they speak of popular feminism to distinguish from bourgeois feminism. You know, the one that are now are, you know, you know what is it? Uh, you know, the Commission for Women's Rights and et cetera, et cetera, that are there to control actually other women. 
Yeah, but it's very important. Yeah. Yeah? They have so tell me, yes. Yes. Yeah, I think that, yes, you know, maybe we can talk about later, but there is a, there is a literature, I think there is a literature to which also the feminist movement has contributed, of critique of all that Darwinism, which is still with us, you know, the survival of the fit, I mean, the whole thing about competition now, right, still, still very much with us, it's not something of the past, yeah, mm -hmm. yes. You know, I don't think, I mean, and I, 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 I'm not going to give you a really very, you know, precise answer, but my, my, my general answer is that uh, this is not the days probably a classification book or master plan, but the fact that as a whole, you know, the power relation, women in such a power relation where, you know, employers know that you have always been working for no money, that you have this long, you know, training to working for no money at all, that uh, the moment a sector becomes predominantly female, it's like almost an automatic thing, that wages, you know, are dropping. So, uh, and I think it's very, very important, the devaluation of the whole sphere of reproduction has a con consequence also when women go to work outside the home and also the kind of jobs, right? The kind of job because the majority of women are still doing an extension of housework. <laughs> Even though women are now more present in you know, sectors that were dominated by men, but nevertheless, the majority of their work is still reproductive work. Yeah. So I'll take, yes. Oh yeah, they told me. I haven't seen it, but they yeah. told me that it's very it powerful. Yeah. Out the yeah. Issue of um, you know demonizing women in the modern day carceral system yeah. around uh, women who are gender non-conforming and mm -hmm. queer. Mm -hmm. So I just want to raise that. Yeah. It's a great film, Southwest. Yeah, Southwest of Canada. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen the movie. Yeah, I mean, they look, the castle system, it's like the continuation and the different title of, you know, slave plantation. And in some cases, you can see it almost, uh, you know, graphically. Take a place, a place like Angola in Louisiana, right? I don't know if Angola was literally uh, a slave plantation. And uh, you have the pictures 
from Angola slave plantation and all the workers are slave, African, and then you have the supervisor, white man on a horse with a rifle, and today it's the same, the only thing is a jail, right? And you have young men, predominantly black, and you still have, and they are producing, you know, they are producing agriculture, huge amount of agricultural product for the, the, the jail is selling, and then you have the supervisor, I mean, it's, it's a continuation. And I think you're right about, you know, the impact is never seeing the impact on the family. Right. And the same thing also with the death penalty. Yeah, we thought the death penalty is horrendous. Horrendous is also what it does to the family. You know, the, the whole life of community of women, because they are the ones, in fact, when uh, you have a long sentence, and people, you know, gradually for, forget yeah. who is in jail. It's the women who go. It's the women who deal with the trauma of the children, of seeing your father, seeing your brother in jail, who have to decide, I'm going to take this child or not, and having to do with all their work and their anguish. Yeah, there's a whole chapter, and uh, this is even more extreme when you have the death penalty. You know, and, and uh, so that's a, this is, the struggle against slavery is still very much alive today. It's something that is, has to be part of our struggle, whatever we do, in whatever movement we are. Yeah. And yes, oh yeah, you had your hand up and then you had, yes. Yeah. Yeah, you go first and then, yeah, you're right there. Sure. Okay. Um, some, I mean, one thing that I admired, among other things, about that book is you have this logic about capitalism, this assumption about capitalism that as it develops, it rationalizes stuff. It uh. rationalizes labor, it rationalizes, yeah. it develops science and all of that, but you are kind of bending the stick to the other direction and say, and you say, no, it actually mystifies a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And hence we have these crazy witch hunts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's really admirable. However, um, there is, there is, I think, an argument in like not quite the other opposite direction, but you know, by this, by kind of, by as capitalism develops, not always, but sometimes it also brings down like built-in hate systems. Uh, Oh, For instance, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, I don't know if you're where you're going there, but you know, I was just reading. I was just reading recently, you know, Mark's comments on India, and. Uh, oh, I'm not talking about that. Oh, okay, okay. That. Then quickly come to the question because you know we are really coming to the <laughs> end. Just come to the question I'll that because there are there are two or three other people. Okay. Well, the question is: Don't uh, don't you think that there is uh, there is a tendency? One tendency of capitalism that allowed the women to speak up for themselves. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. No, we don't, I don't have the time to um, support what I'm saying. I'm just saying, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I want to add something. You know, uh, usually the little chapter on gossip, 
I wrote the chapter on Gothic to see the change of the word Gothic from the Middle Ages to the 18th century when, uh, you know, in the period of the witch hunt. Gossip used to, call, to, used to mean uh, my friend. And then it becomes what it is now, bad talk, idol. Uh, so there's a whole thing when you read that chapter. But in that chapter, you also read that uh, in the 16th, 17th century, women were seen as too talkative, protesting, rebellious, etc., etc. They were placed, they were muzzled, they would place you know, a contraption of leather or metal, the same contraption that was placed on the heads of slaves. And it had a tongue, a metal tongue. They went into the tongue and had a spike. And if the women talked, the, the spike broke the tongue. I talk about that. In, in fact, actually, I also wanted to have a picture on it, but for some number of reasons, we didn't put it. But there's pictures that you can even find on the net of women with this. It was invented in Scotland in the middle of the 16th century, and it was then used extensively. And women would be paraded in the community, you know, with this, and you'll be paraded with a leash uh, to show other women. So we are not talking about capitalism enabling women to talk and to protest. But you had a question. Yes. The rise in technology and the rise in homelessness being mm -hmm. linked to the yes. and you know a lot yes. about housing. Mm -hmm. Our biggest violence here in the Bay Area is homeless. the housing yeah. crisis. How would you advise us to reorganize around our housing crisis? Well, the housing crisis is part, yes, the very good question because uh, one of the things, you know, one of my politics in terms of a feminist program uh, is the politics of saying that in whatever form we have to struggle to reappropriate resources. We cannot change. Changing identity is not enough. Right. This is what I'm trying to say, for example, in Beyond the Periphery of the Skin. Right? We have to change the material condition of our life. And changing means reappropriating the resources that we have that it is land, assets, forest. We cannot think of building commons. You know, commons are not a redistribution of poverty. Commons are not. So one, we have to change the way we organize, the way we reproduce our society and the way we produce. We have to change completely that. But that change cannot take place without a reappropriation. We have to talk about taking back taking back because now capitalism has all our wealth, all our wealth, what they know, our labor, our creativity, our imagination has produced, it's now in their hands and is used against us. So the, the challenge of the struggle is to figure out how we are appropriating, what kind of organization, what kind of social relation we have to build about us, how we overcome the way we have been divided so that we have that power so that we have the solidarity. That, to me, is the struggle. We probably have finished. Oh, one more question? Great, great. One more question? Yes. Yeah. 
chilling and yeah. Flashmobs and the current like heightened visibility of the international day of gun violence yeah. happening this morning. Um, just because it's on a global high right now. Yeah. Um, how do you harness that and connect it to the larger resistance against? Can you repeat the question? The question was um, how do we connect the the global movement against violence against women to larger issues of of um, uh, anti capitalist struggle? That, yeah, that's. I think it's great. It's great. You know, very much in contact with women neonamenos in Argentina. They're there. They have an anti-capitalist perspective. I mean, one of the issues they've been discussing in the last, uh, for example, this last year, I think women and debt, right? The deuda. In fact, they have all this because they realize that part of the violence is also through indebtedness. Right, and uh, so I think that a lot of it is there, but I think it's a very important question, is what I was saying before. You know, the same with violence. You cannot really effectively struggle against violence against women unless you struggle against the conditions that are producing the violence. Women are being killed because they are defending forests. Think of Bertha Cassidy. Think of all the women that have been killed, the men that have been killed just in the last few years after the so-called peace accord in Colombia. Right? Think of Marielle Franco. Think of Marielle Franco in Brazil. Right? So women are you know, being killed because they are struggling, because they are refusing you know, this institutional carceral policy, because they are refusing the destruction of the environment, the destruction of their communities. So that context, the broader context is necessary. One criticism I have often of the Me Too movement is that often it appears, I'm not saying always, but it appears that the problem is a few men of power who are abusing their power. Yeah, they are abusing their power and, and should, but it's the system. I think that the real problem, right, because uh, when you talk about the violence, you know, that is taking place in the workplace, for instance, right, and it's taking place in the, the way people are working, yeah? the exposing, being exposed uh, to chemical, to chemical, uh, you know, fumes, to be, you know, working hours and hours of work that prevents you from being with your family or doing other things or going to, uh, all of that is violence. So that this is what I was saying before. We, in order to deal effectively, you know, against violence, we also have to see what are the economic, social, political conditions that are generating it. It's, and it's not enough to put the blame on a number of men as, as clearly the blame has to be put. But it's more systemic. And, and I think there's a growing consciousness of that today, certainly in Latin America. Yeah. But I think also in the United States. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much.